everyone. It's good to see you here this morning as uh, we are continuing in a series now that we've been calling 90. If you're just tuning in for this, basically what we've been doing is uh, over the course of 90 days, uh, we have been journeying through the entire Bible. And, uh, and so uh, in this series, we're kind of in the middle right now. Uh, basically what we've been saying is we've been saying, man, you know, the Bible is, uh, is such an unbelievably important and foundational book, um, not only historically, um, but also for many of us personally. And yet, while the Bible is so important in our culture today, it's one of those things that is, uh, it is met with a lot of confusion, um, a lot of uh, skepticism for some, and, uh, and there's just a lot of ambiguity that kind of surrounds the Bible. And so a lot of people are wondering, what is the Bible about and, and what gives it authority and, and what makes it something that's worth building your faith on? And so it's because of that in this series, kind of because some of that confusion and that skepticism and that ambiguity that we said, hey, man, what if we took just a whole, the whole summer over the course of 90 days and we just kind of surveyed, overviewed the entire Bible? What if we did that? And so that's what we've been doing in this series. And we, we actually started real, real, real simple and real basic. And we began by asking a very, very foundational question our first week together. And the question that we asked as we introduced this whole series was, um, what is the Bible? We just started real basic. And we said, you know, when you're holding your Bible, what are you holding? What is this? Um, where did it come from? How did we get the Bible that we have today? How was it passed down to us? How do we know that it's reliable or trustworthy? Or how do we know if it's, if it's fiction or if it's a fable? How do we know that? And, uh, and so the whole first week, we just kind of unpacked that. We talked about what the Bible is and where it came from and how we got it. After that, we asked a really another, another really basic question. And the second question that we asked was just real simply this. We said, what's the Bible about? We said from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, what is kind of the uniting thread that ties this whole book together? What is this and what is it really about? And we said if you really want to condense it down and kind of put it in a nutshell, what the Bible is is the Bible is God's rescue plan. That's what it is. So when you're holding the Bible and you're like, what's this thing about? In a nutshell, it's God's rescue plan. That is to say that the Bible um, in every part in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is not only uh, a description of God's desire to save humanity, uh, but it also is the explanation of how God has done that and how um, God has planned to save humanity. So the, the Bible is really God's rescue plan. We said this rescue plan that we're holding, the Bible, is actually something that's very thorough. It's a very exhaustive explanation of what it means when it says that we're saved, that God wants to save us. And so we said the Bible really teaches us a few things. It teaches us what we're saved from, it teaches us what we're saved by, and it teaches us what we're saved to. And it really explains to us kind of the fullness of what it means when the Bible says that God has rescued us, that it means that we're rescued from some stuff, it means we're rescued by some stuff, and it means we're rescued to some stuff. And so it's because of that that in this series what we've been doing is we've we've been sort of highlighting uh, and talking underneath one of those headings each week. And so, for example, we spent three weeks talking about what we're saved from, what the Bible says we're saved from. Last week we started talking about what we're saved by. And by the way, I just encourage you, again, if you're a guest with us this morning, you're just tuning in and you missed any of those conversations or all of them, um, you can actually go online, you can download those for free, you can watch those or listen to those on podcast if you choose to. And I'd encourage you to do that, it might be helpful for you um, to kind of get a full context of this series. But today, as we sort of continue in this, I want to continue talking about what the Bible teaches us we're saved by, all right? And so here's where we're going to go today, here's a topic that I want to address, is that the Bible teaches us that we are saved by the living God, okay? We are saved by the living God. Now, what in the world do I mean when I say that we're saved by the living God? Well, that's what I want to spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking together. And the way that I want to do that is I actually want to take you to a very kind of strange passage in the Old Testament and one that at first glance almost seems insignificant. 
And so I want to encourage you to take your Bibles with me if you would. We're going to go to Judges chapter 17 this morning. Judges 17. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get there. We're just going to go to this one place today, so we're not going to be flipping around a whole bunch. So you can just open your Bibles to that passage and just keep it open. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's no problem. We actually have um, some Bibles that are out there in the chairs for you. Um, those black Bibles look just like this one. Um, and in those Bibles, it's page 178. You're going to find uh, Judges chapter 17. So you guys can go ahead and flip there. And as you're flipping to Judges 17, um, I think it'd probably be helpful if I just kind of gave you a little bit of a, of a landscape of what we're gonna, what, how we're going to kind of cover this material today. So uh, what I want to do today is I, this passage, like I said, is really kind of strange. And again, it's, it's one that you can just gloss right over and, and not even pay attention to. It's one of those passages that doesn't make sense at first glance, and it requires some explanation. And so what I want to do is I want to spend the first part just explaining the passage, just strict explanation. And then after that, I want to move on to application, all right? Now, the reason I tell you that is because I want to encourage you to try to stick with me at the beginning here, all right? Like I said, it's a lot of explanation. There's a lot of details that are in here that I'm going to need to unpack. And so I just want to encourage you, it's worth it, okay? So try to stick with me because by the time you understand what this passage means, I believe it has unbelievable applications that are completely life-changing, and, uh, and are very significant to you and I today, all right? So having said that, Judges 17, uh, let me just give you a little more background on the book of Judges. So the book of Judges is, in my opinion, um, probably one of the most difficult books of the Bible to read. And, and I don't say that because it's boring or because it's uneventful. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's extremely eventful. Lots of crazy things happen. The reason it's one of the most difficult books to read, in my opinion, is because it is just so unbelievably disturbing, um, the, the amount of violence, uh, the amount of murder, um, the amount of sexual scandal uh, and profanity and profane things that happen in the book of Judges is so extreme um, that it makes shows like Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones look like a Pixar movie, all right? I mean, and I'm not kidding. You read the book, if you've ever read it, it is a very, very hard book to read because it's disturbing and it's grotesque, and people, it's, a, it's a whole new level of evil. And when you read the book of Judges, what you see is that it starts bad, and it just gets worse. And by the time the book of Judges ends, you feel totally unsatisfied, and you feel like you need to go take a shower. This book is just, it's just a downward spiral. And one of the things that you see in the book of Judges is that there is a cycle that repeats over and over and over again. In fact, it happens 12 times. And here's the cycle that we see. Like I said, you see it over and over again. It always begins with disobedience. And so you have God's people, the Israelites, and, and you see that the Bible says that they turn from God. They turn away from him. They start worshiping other gods. They do things that are detestable in his eyes, right? And the Bible says that after the people are disobedient for a long period of time, God gives them over to their foreign gods or to their sinful way of living or whatever. And the Bible says that what happens is there's disaster, it's just, just disaster. It's a terrible situation. They find themselves in a hard place. And it's not until they hit rock bottom. Finally, they hit rock bottom and they cry out to God, God, would you save us? Would you deliver us? And God, in his loving kindness, once again, provides a deliverer. They call these guys judges. That's why the book is called Judges, because God raises up these leaders, these people called judges, to kind of help the nation of Israel get back on track with God. And this cycle, this cycle, and I shouldn't even call it a cycle. It's more like a spiral, like a downward spiral. Happens 12 times in the book of Judges. You see the same thing repeat. And then it's not until you get to Judges chapter 16 that we see that the last judge of Israel dies, Samson. And when we get to Judges chapter 17, we are told 
But Israel at this point has no leader, has no king. And I want you just to, to kind of see what happens. This is where we're going to pick up the story in Judges 17. All right, so let's start in verse 1. Really weird story. Verse 1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, uh, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. And then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. Right, so let me just pause here. Once again, this is a weird story, and it actually starts in a really, really weird place, doesn't it? Um, all of a sudden, we're just kind of propelled into this story. There is no character development. Um, there is no plot development. In fact, we even see that this whole thing begins sort of in mid-sentence. And so apparently, the Bible tells us here, as we get into Judges 17, there's a guy named Micah. We don't know anything about Micah. He's not mentioned anywhere before in this book. This is the first time that we see him. But apparently, what we see in the story is that his mother must have had 1,100 shekels of silver for whatever reason. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. She has 1,100 shekels of silver, which was a very substantial amount of money. And apparently, someone stole her money, right? And so the Bible says here, at least what we can gather from these short verses, is that when someone stole her money, she must have called out to God and said, God, whoever took my money, I pray that you would curse them, right? Kill them or something like that. And, and so what happens is, I guess her son, Micah, heard this. So he comes to her and he confesses. He says, Mom, remember the money that was stolen from you? She's like, yeah. He's like, the money that you cursed? Yeah, I took it. It was me. And, and so then all of a sudden, strangely, his mother just changes her tune, and she goes from cursing to blessing. And she's like, well, the Lord bless you, my son, cries out to him. Really strange, right? You track him? All right, so now watch this. Let's keep going. Verse 3. When he returned, when Micah returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image and overlay it with silver. I will give it back to you. And so after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and she gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was, and, and it, um, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and he installed one of his sons as his priest. Now, again, like I said, this is, there's a great amount of craziness and weird details in this story. So let me kind of summarize what's going on again. So Micah steals money from his mom. He comes back to his mom. He says, Mom, I stole your money. And she goes, well, I will bless you, my son. What I'm going to do with the money is I'm going to consecrate it to God. I'm going to give it back to, the, to, to God, right? And the way she does that is really weird. She says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take 200 shekels of silver. I'm going to send it over to the silversmith. And I'm going to have him create an idol, now, now, some of you guys are like, now, what exactly is an idol again? And, and some of you might know this, but back in this time, the common way in which the neighboring nations around Israel would worship their God is they would, they would practice idol worship. And so they would, they would create an image, kind of look like a figurine, right? And they would place that somewhere in their house, and they would pray to and worship and bow down to that God. And so Micah's mom says, well, I want to I honor God. And all the other nations are making idols for their God, so why don't we make an image for our God? So I'm going to take this silver, I'm going to send it to the silversmith, he's going to make a, an image, we don't even know what it was of, the Bible doesn't tell us. He's going to make an idol, then when she gets the idol back from the silversmith, she gives it to her son Micah, Micah takes it, Bible says he goes back to his house and he puts it in the shrine, apparently he has a shrine in his house, because you know who doesn't. So he puts this thing on the shrine, and then the Bible says he does something weird. He takes his son... And he makes them an ephod, which an ephod was, was basically the clothes that a priest would wear. The Bible tells us that priests were required to wear ephods. So he makes this priestly garment 
puts it on his son and says, okay, you're the priest now. Now, what in the world is, is happening here? I'll tell you what's going on. Here's what Micah is doing. Micah is, is really um, sort of inventing his own religion. He's like, here's, my, here's our God, and here's a shrine, and then we, now we even got a priest, and so we've kind of developed our own religion here. Very weird. Well, now watch what happens. Keep going with the story. Verse 7. All right, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Verse 7. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living with the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place, in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. And Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver and your clothes and your food. And so the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. And then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and he lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. So this weird story gets weirder. And the Bible says that, that basically what happens here, just to kind of review, that there's this Levite, which, by the way, a Levite, Israel had 12 tribes. One of those tribes was the tribe of Levi. And if you were from the tribe of Levite, the Old Testament said uh, that God had commanded that only the Levites become priests in the temple of God. So these guys were priests, like legit priests in the temple of God. So the Bible says this Levite, he's unnamed, is apparently walking by Micah's house. Micah sees him. It's the weirdest interaction. Micah sees him, and he says, hey, where are you from? And the guy goes, I'm a Levite. And Micah goes, oh my gosh, that's crazy because I'm creating my own religion over here. Just so, just so happens. And, and you're a real priest, right? So he says to him, hey, why don't you be my father and my priest? He's like, hey, you want to be my dad? I mean, who, who's ever done that? Who's ever just met someone and been like, hey, how's it going? Nice to meet you, dad. Want to be my father? How about it, you know? And so he's like, you could be my father. You could be my priest. How about that? And then we can get like a, like a real, have a real life Levite, man. We can have a real religion here. And the Bible says the Levite's like, man, what's in it for me? He's like, uh, I'll pay you and I'll provide food and clothing, all room and board, all expenses paid. And the Levite's like, sounds like a deal. And all of a sudden, the Bible says he, this Levite starts serving in this weird little religion that these guys have created. Now again, weird passage, bizarre passage. This is one of those things that if you're in a Bible reading plan right now, you probably gloss right past this without thinking twice about it because it's so strange, right? But what, what is at the heart of this passage? Well, let me, let me try to explain to you what's at the heart of this passage. And even if you didn't track with all the details that I just gave, that's totally fine. If you're like, I think I know what's going on, but I'm kind of having a hard time understanding, that's totally fine. I just want you to understand that they're, they're, the key to unlocking the meaning of this passage is actually right in front of us in verse 6. I want you to notice again what happens in verse 6. Notice what it says. It's strangely placed directly in the middle of the story. Look at it. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Now, some of you have different translations, and it might say, in those days, Israel had no king, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what it might say. Now, you might not know this, but this actually, this little sentence actually becomes the mantra that is repeated over and over again for the rest of the book of Judges. It appears here in 17.6, it appears again in 18.1, it appears again in 19.1, and the entire book of Judges ends with this very statement. At that time, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone determined in their eyes what they thought was right. Now, now what's going on in this passage? Let me tell you what's going on in this passage. You got three characters. You have Micah, 
Micah's mom and the Levite, and all three of them are simply doing whatever they think is right in their own eyes. And they're doing this at the expense of what the Bible clearly commands that they should not do. Now, for some of us, what might not be obvious, because for some of us, we're just not real familiar with the Old Testament, what might not be real obvious is that there are a number of ways in this passage that these three characters are just completely disregarding what the Bible teaches. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it spells out for us very clearly the way that God wants to be worshipped and how that's to be done. And in this passage, they violate this over and over and over again. So let me just give you a few examples. There's a number of ways this happens, but let me just show you four ways that these characters are violating what the Bible teaches. So, for example, one of the first things we see is that Micah's mother wanted to honor God by making an image of God. So Micah's mom says, "Um, man, I want to honor God. I want to honor God. So I'm going to go make an idol. I'm going to go make an image of God. Now, now anyone who is familiar with the the Ten Commandments knows that this is like a major no-no, right? It's the second commandment. God says in the second commandment, I don't want you to make any graven image of me. Don't, Don't try to make an image of me like the other nations do and worship their God that way. I don't want you to try to make an idol and worship it. And yet here in this passage, the Bible says that Micah's mom's like, well, all the other nations are doing it, so I think we ought to do it too. And she's just doing whatever she thinks is right in her own eyes. And she's disregarding what the Bible teaches about that. Here's another one. Notice this passage that Micah sets up a shrine to worship God at his own house. Now again, man, you read the Old Testament, first five books of the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that God prescribed very specific ways that he wanted to be interacted with. And there was a, this, at this time, it was temple worship. So if you wanted to worship God, you had to go to the temple. That's where you had to go. That, that you couldn't just worship God anywhere. There was a protocol. You had to go and make sacrifices. You had to interact with the priests. There was a place that you had to go to. And Micah's like, well, you know what? I don't like that. I don't like that I have to go. So I want to worship God in my own house. It's more comfortable. All my stuff's here, right? So he's like, I'm just going to set up a shrine. I'm going to hold worship services at my own house. And notice again, here's another one. Micah makes his son a priest, and he makes him an ephod, makes him a priest. Now, once again, like we said, the Old Testament said, God said, only Levites are to be priests, no one else. And yet Micah says, well, my son could be a priest. I'll just make my own ephod, right? Just do it yourself. Just B-Y-O-E, you know, bring your own ephod. I'll make it for him. I'll put it on him, and that's, that's what we'll do, right? And then again, here's the last one. Then the Levite came to the house, and he agreed to work for him for a set price, Again, Levites understood, Levite priests understood that the only place that they were to practice their priesthood was at the temple. And yet this Levite was bought for a price. So sure, you know, I'll just, if you're going to pay me and, and put me up, room and board, man, I'm in. I'll do it. I'll be part of your little religious, that's your, your new little religion. That's fine with me, right? What do you have here? Here's what you have. You have a group of people who are starting to determine what they believe is right about God in their own eyes. And in so doing, they start editing God, right? They start doing some things that the Bible says, but at the expense of other things. They start to create their own God, and they're worshiping God in name, but they're not worshiping God in truth, right? They're determining and defining God on their own terms. Now, that's the explanation. Now, once again, you might be like, I'm not sure I track with all those details, but I hope you get the explanation, because now I want to give you some application, so what does this have to do with us? So some of you might already starting to be connect, might already start connecting the dots, but I just want to give you a few application points. Here's one of them. One of the major applications of this passage, I believe, is it reveals to us the subtle simplicity of creating a God. 
This passage reveals to us how subtle and how easy it is to make a God on our own terms, to create God ourselves. And here's the thing. You and I, we can read this passage and say, man, how silly is this? How weird is that these people, how stupid are they that they would just try to create their own religion and create God on their own terms and just do whatever they want without even like, like, man, how silly is this? But the truth is, this is way easier than we think it is. And it's so subtle that some of us might actually be doing this right now, creating a God and we might not even know it, right? It's a very easy thing to do. How does it happen? Well, as I mentioned a little earlier, one of the things about this culture in this time was that the neighboring nations around Israel, all the foreign nations, the way that they commonly would practice worship to their gods was they would create images, they would create idols, and they would bow down to those idols, they would pray to those idols. That was kind of the common way of worshiping back in this time. And the way that they would do that is they would oftentimes try to make an image that would somehow portray the characteristics of that god in a way that made sense to them, right? They basically would try to make their god in such a way that that they could understand that god. So for example, let me just show you a couple images of some of the idols that people worshipped back in this time. I'll show it to you up here. Um, So you have two different gods here. These were gods that were worshipped back in this time. One was Baal. Baal's the one that's over here um, on your left. Yes, on your left. And Baal was considered the god of the thunderstorm, right? And so one of the things that you see with Baal, it's kind of hard to tell, but what he's got in his hand is he has a lightning bolt. And why why does he have a lightning bolt in his hand? Because that was was a, a representation that made it easy for people to understand what this God was like. He's the God of the storm. And so now when I bow down to this God and I worship this God, he makes sense to me. I understand him, right? He's, he's manageable. I've condensed him down to an image that makes sense to me. Um, in the same way, there's another God. This is Dagon, or I like to call him Dogon because he's Dogon, the wrong God. That was so bad. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Dagon is, was the God of the sea, right? And so you can see that, how do they depict this God? Well, they depict him as half man, half, he's a merman, right? And why did they do this? Because again, they're trying to condense him down into a way that is palatable and understandable. They're trying to make their God in such a way that you can relate with him, right? Well, the reason that the God of the Bible comes in and says, I don't want you to make any idols of me, right? Is because the reason that God says that is because God knows that there is no image that we can condense him down into that's going to do justice to his character. The Bible over and over and over again explains to us that God is indescribable. He is unexplainable. He is not like us, okay? He is holy. He is just. He is merciful. He is graceful. He is wrathful. He is all these things. And the Bible says, God says, I don't want you to try to whittle me down into some manageable construct that makes sense to you. Because the moment that you try to confine me into an image, he says, you've lost me. There's elements in me that you can't, like how, how are you gonna find an image that summarizes the love and grace of God and the wrath of anger? Is there any image that exists that can do justice to that kind of God? So God says, I don't want you to create an image because I don't fit neatly into the constructs of your imagination. I blow past human logic. I don't fit into your philosophical systems. I don't work in those ways, so I don't want you to create an image of me because I don't want you to determine who I am, right? Don't try to fit me into your thinking. That's what God says. And yet in this passage, what do we see, man? We see Micah, we see his mom, we see this Levite, and they're all saying, well, I think God should be like this. 
I think God should be like this. You know, we're going to take some of the, we're going to take some of what the Bible says, and we're going to disregard some of this, and we're going to kind of piece part this thing together. And look, now we have God, and they're worshiping God in name, but they're not worshiping Him in truth. They've created their own God, and it happens so subtle. You see, guys, here's the truth: you and I are the same. Our hearts naturally have a proclivity to start editing God and whittling Him down into a manageable into a manageable size that meets our opinions, that meets our prejudices, that complements our views. And all of a sudden we try to do it. We do this in a lot of different ways. You know, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about this. We were talking about God's wrath. You might remember that conversation. And we said, man, this is one of those conversations where in our culture, man, we love talking about God's grace. We love talking about God's forgiveness. We love talking about kindness and mercy. We love that. Oh, but we really don't like talking about a God of wrath. And what a lot of us do is we, we edit that out. We say, well, I don't, I don't worship a God like that. I worship a God like this. This is what my God is like. Well, well, well do you see what you've just done there? You've edited God. And, and you've whittled him down to a, manageable, to a manageable size that meets your thoughts of what you believe God should be like. Right? And we do this in many ways. See, I think in a, in a room of this size, one of the things that I can't help but wonder is that there's probably many people, I would say that, that many of us in this room, not all of us, but I think many of us in this room, if I asked you, you know, what's your, what's your faith opinion? You would say, I worship God and I follow Jesus. I think most of us, many of us in this room would say that. Now I know there's some of you who would say, I don't know, I, I don't know if, I, if I worship God and follow Jesus. I'm investigating this whole thing and I'm not sure I even agree with what you're talking about or believe in the Bible. And if that's the case, let me just say, we say this all the time, but I'll say it again, it's worth saying. But if you're investigating Jesus, I, I sincerely mean this. We count it a privilege that you would let us be part of that investigation. You could do anything you want with your Sunday morning. And the fact that you came here to investigate, I think, is, a really, is really commendable. And so, but, but I think for many of us in this room, um, we believe that we, we follow God and we worship Jesus. We would say that. I would say that. I follow God and I worship Jesus. Yet, I believe that if we were to go around and I was to ask you, tell me about the God you worship and the Jesus you follow. I think we might come to realize that for some of us, we are worshiping a different God and a different Jesus. And we worship him in name, but do we worship him in truth? So for some of us, we're like, yeah, man, I love Jesus. I follow Jesus. Jesus is awesome. It's great. I just can't really accept that whole thing about him being the only way to connect with God. I think there's multiple ways you can connect with God. I think all religions have validity, and really Christianity is just among many things. And so, yeah, I love Jesus, and that works for me. And I went, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because that's not what Jesus said about himself. You see what you just did? You edited him. And what we see in this passage is the moment that you subtract from God, it's not like you have a reduced version of God. You've lost him altogether because now you have a God of your own making. You created a God. You didn't even know it. it happens so subtle, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I love God. God's awesome. I follow God. I worship God. He's my favorite. Love him. He's my favorite. I don't know. You know love God. Like, I just, I just, you know, there's just some things I can't accept, like the views of sexuality in the Bible. It's just beyond. They're regressive. They're not current to the times. And so we need to update some stuff, you know, and, and we kind of need to have like a 2.0 version of God because the old version isn't working so well. And I'm like, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Who said that? You? Our culture? Did God say that about himself? You see what's happened? We've edited God. We've, we've, We've put him down into a manageable level, and we have become the ones who determine who he is, worshiping in him in name, but not 
in truth, it's subtle. It happens so easy, and our hearts are prone to do this. We want to edit God. We want to change God. We want to make him, manipulate him to do what we think, to meet our opinions, to meet our desires, to meet our... We do it. I do it. This passage shows us the subtlety of how that happens. Here's the second thing I want to show you about this passage I think is really powerful. This passage demonstrates to us the long-term danger of creating a God. The long-term danger of creating a God. Uh, One of the things I think is so strange about this passage is how unbelievably uneventful it is. It's the most boring story in the Bible. It's not even told well. And it's just this boring story. And sure, things are, people are doing some weird stuff and, um, and they're doing weird things and it's got weird, weird things happening in it. But no one's getting hurt, right? No one's getting hurt. I mean, no one's getting murdered in this chapter. No one's, you know, stabbing someone through the stomach with a sword. No one's taking a tent spike and, and hammering it through someone's head. No one's cutting up people and sending them to different parts of the world, which by the way, all that happens in the book of Judges. And you're, some of you are like, man, I need to read the Bible more, you know? It is, I'm telling you, Judges is a hard one to read. But no one's dying, right? And it seems like, well, this is all, you know, weird. And sure, they're disobeying God and they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's all fine. But at least no one's getting hurt, right? But, but you see, this is, this is why I believe this is such an important chapter. Because I believe that the author of the book of Judges is actually trying to show us something really significant. Because you notice that the Bible says in verse 6, in that time, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did as they saw fit. Chapter 18, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel had no king. Now, in chapter 17, no one gets hurt. In chapter 18, people get hurt. In chapter 19, it says the same thing. In that time, Israel had no king. And Judges chapter 19 is by far the darkest, most disturbing, a whole new level of evil that you see in the Bible happens in Judges 19. It is so terrible, it is so wicked that it's almost embarrassing to even read it. It's how bad it is. It's so bad that the Israelites said about what happened in Judges 19, they said, we have never seen anything like that before. That is a new level of evil that not even we have seen. And they've lived out the whole book of Judges. And they're like, that's the worst that we've ever seen. And the question is, how did they get to Judges 19? Well, the author tells us the way you get to Judges 19 is you start in Judges 17. That's where it all starts, man. It all begins with people starting to do what's right in their own eyes, beginning to change and edit God on their own terms. And at first, sure, no one gets hurt. Chapter 18, people start getting hurt. Chapter 19, it leads to the darkest chapter in the entire Bible. What is Judges telling us? Here's what it's telling us. The danger the trajectory, the path that this way of living leads us to. You guys, I know that for some of you, even as I'm talking, you're already starting to make connections that we today, man, we live in a judge's culture, don't we? Um, Moral relativism rules the day. That is the popular opinion that everyone determines what's right in their own eyes. Man, you do what's right for you and I'm gonna do what's right for me. And don't you tell me what's right for me and I won't tell you what's right for you. You worship God how you want, I'll worship God how I want. You determine for yourself what good is, and I'll determine what God is like for me, right? And we do this. Now, now please, don't hear me. This isn't like an anti-America message. It's not what I'm saying, all right? But what I'm saying is the Bible tells us that when we start doing that, that it leads somewhere, that there is a trajectory to this type of thinking. And while at first glance, we might think that this is actually gonna lead us to freedom, This is actually going to lead us to human flourishing. The Bible tells us it's the exact opposite. This whole 
chapter, Judges 17. Actually, the whole book of Judges is really out to prove to us what Proverbs says. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says, there is a way that appears right, but in the end, it leads to death. There's a way that seems right to us. We believe it's gonna lead to increased freedom and to better human flourishing, but in the end, it's just gonna lead us to slavery and death, and then ultimately, we're gonna be less than human, just like in Judges 19, because this is the trajectory and the path they're on. See, in our culture today, you guys, we, we say this, and we actually, we, we say it with a caveat, don't we? We say, you can do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want, as long as what? You guys know what it is? As long as nobody, no one gets hurt. No one gets hurt. Well, judges tell us that's an impossibility. Because when we start defining and determining for ourselves what we believe is right and how we think God should be, and I, and I become the king of my own life, the Bible says this leads somewhere. It leads to a really bad place. And God hates it. And God hates it not because he's a power lord, overlord, you know, wants to just control our lives and dictate us and steal our slavery. God hates it because he knows it hurts us and it'll kill us and it'll steal the freedom that he wants to give us and it'll remove the flourishing that he's designed for us. And so God hates it. So this passage reveals to us a few things. The subtle simplicity of creating a God, it reveals to us the dangers of creating God. And here's the last thing. One of the things this passage does is it doesn't explicitly say it, but alludes to it. Only the living God can save. Only the living God can save. Now, it's kind of fascinating. I don't know if you guys have ever read through the Bible. One of the titles that's given to God over and over again, Old and New Testament, is the Bible calls God the living God. God actually calls himself the living God in many, uh, in many different passages. And that's kind of a weird title, isn't it? Why would God want to refer to himself as living why would God say, I'm the living God. Come to me, the living God. Why would he want us to refer to him as the living God? Well, here's why. The, the term living, if you think about it, it really tells us two things about God, doesn't it? First off, it tells us this. It tells us that God is the author of life, that life flows from God, that everything that has breath, that everything that has life, that that life is given to it from God. The Bible tells us that, that the only reason we have breath is because God has given it to us. And, and so we're living because we're in his image. God is a living God. He's the author of life. But the other thing the term living brings with it is it almost brings like a personal quality to it, doesn't it? Because if something is alive, that means it has a will. That means it has um, emotions. That means it has desires. Um, that means if it's living, that means it's not dead. It can't, it can't be dealt with like a philosophical construct or a worldview. Those are dead things, right? Those are, those are simply in your mind, but they're not alive, right? If, it, if it's living, that means it can't be edited. You can't edit living things, right? Listen to me. The moment that we think we can start editing God on our own terms, and I like this, and I don't like that, and I'm going to do this with God, and I don't agree with this. The moment we start doing that, we have just proved that we, are not, we don't believe there's a living God. We're dealing with a dead God. You're dealing with God as a philosophy, as a worldview. You're dealing with God as a religious system, but not as a living God. Because you can't edit living things. You can't manage living things. They are what they are, regardless of what your opinion is, right? Because they're alive. And if you can manage your God and manipulate him, then I'm just telling you, you have a weekend at Bernie's God. You guys know what I'm talking about? Did you ever see Weekend at Bernie's, that weird, morbid comedy in the 80s? It was a weird movie. I don't even remember the plot, but it was something like this. There's these two guys. I think they had an Uncle Bernie who died. And then the rest of the movie was them trying to convince everyone that Bernie was still alive. It was really weird. And so what they would do is they would dress him up, and they would bring him to parties, and they would work him like a marionette, you know. And, 
and they would make him do whatever they wanted him to do, and they would kind of just take him where they wanted. Look, if you have a God, if you have a God that you can manipulate and control to your will and to your desires, dress him how you want him to meet your opinions and your, and your preferences, you have a dead God, not real. Because a living God has a will. A living God has desires. A living God is knowable, right? Remember when Jess and I first started dating, my wife, when we first started dating, I remember the first month we were together, I thought, oh my gosh, we, we have so much in common, right? The first month. So I remember I was like, we're two peas in a pod. She loves Jesus. I love Jesus. You know, it's like, she likes to eat food. I like to eat food. We're just practically the same person. You know, she likes to breathe. I have a face. We're the same, you know? And, uh, and I was kind of like, wow, we got to, well, after we started to get to know each other, like any two people who get to know each other, and after we got married and had kids, I began to realize we are two very different creatures, very different. And part of that's what makes marriage so cool, isn't it? Because you get to learn the other person, what they're like and, and how they're wired. That's pretty cool. But, but she would do things that baffled me. And I know I would do things that baffled her. So for example, I came to learn pretty quick when I started dating Jess that she enjoys cleaning and organizing. And I was like, what planet are you from? This is a new teaching to me because I will clean and I will organize. I don't like it. She likes it, like wants to do it. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And then she found out pretty quickly. She's like a super strong extroverted person and I'm more on the introverted side. And she learned about me that I don't mind being alone. In fact, I kind of like to be alone sometimes. And I remember when we were dating pretty early on, I would tell her, I'd be like, I was like, yeah, I ate dinner by myself tonight. And she'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry you had to do that. I was like, what do you mean? I, I liked it. I didn't want to be with anyone. I wanted to be, I like, kind of liked being by myself. And she was just baffled by it, right? And why is that? It's because we're living. We're living people. I can't edit her, right? I can't change who, who she is just because I, I want her to be a different person. Imagine, imagine if Jess and I were, were having a conversation and she did something that confused me or perplexed me or maybe something I didn't even like. And what if I just looked at her and I said, well, my wife doesn't do that. I don't, my wife isn't like that. My wife is like this, this, and this, but she doesn't like to, to, to organize. She doesn't love to do those type of things. That's not my, my wife isn't like that. You know what my wife would say to me? Say, well, you have an imaginary wife, right? You don't have a real wife because that's not what I'm like and I'm your wife. And by the way, an imaginary wife can't do for you the things that a real wife can do for you. And don't take that the wrong way. That's not what I meant. <laughs> Well, you know what? Honestly, you can take it the wrong way because that's true too, right? An imaginary wife, I can't, I, can't, um, I can't have a partner in life with an imaginary wife. I can't raise kids with an imaginary wife. I can't enjoy partnership with an imaginary wife. Why? Because she's not real. She can't do anything. You guys, how much more with God? Well, I, don't, I, I like this God, but I don't take this and that. You know, I don't accept a God of wrath. I think God would say, well, oh, is that right? you must have an imaginary God because that's not what I'm like. I, I like this part and this piece about God and I want God to do this, but, but I, my, God, my God acts like this when, you know, is that right? Because that's not what I'm like. You must be imagining, must be dealing with an imaginary God. And here's why this is so dangerous because a God of your invention can't save you. A God of your design can do nothing for you. A God that you created is only as powerful as you are. You guys, this is, this is the point the Bible makes over and over and over again. Let, let me just show you one passage. There's so many I could, I could choose from, but I'll show you what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah chapter 10, look what Jeremiah says. He says, for the practices of the people are worthless. They cut down a tree out of the forest. A craftsman shapes it with his chisel. 
They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer with nails so that it doesn't totter. What's he talking about here? He's talking about idol worship, people creating a God. He's like, they create their own God. Now look what he says in verse five. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Don't fear them because they can't do harm and they can't do any good. You see what he says there? He says, Don't, this God can't do anything. Can't walk, can't talk, can't hurt you, can't help you. Why? Because you made him. He's like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, man. You got to carry him. You made him. Can't save you, can't help you, can't do anything for you. Then look what he says, this next part, verse six. No one is like you, Lord. You're great, man. Your name is powerful, mighty in power. Then in verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. Look at this. He's the living God, the eternal king. Tell the people this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. What's Jeremiah saying? The same thing that the Bible says over and over again. The reason that God doesn't want, to worship, want us to worship a created version of him is because a created version of him can't help us, can't save us. I believe that God can save you and can save me. Some of you are in a place right now where you're like, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. God couldn't love me. God couldn't help me. God can't save me. Yes, he can. But only the living God can do that. You have to come to the living God, not to your idea of God, not to your philosophical opinion of God. You gotta come to the living God and you gotta come to on his terms where you say to him, God, one of us has to change and it's gonna be me because you're God and I'm not. So I'll change. Guys, I believe that God has the power to utterly transform your marriage. He does. Some of you, your marriages have been pronounced dead for a long time. And, and, and you're like, man, I would love it if there was a, a new breath of fresh air breathed into my marriage. I would love to see God do something powerful in my marriage. I believe he can do that. I believe he can. But it's only when you come to the living God, not, not to the God of your making. You have to come to the living God. You changed me the real God. God can break you from addictions, from patterns that repeat in your life that, that degrade your humanity, that make you less than human. God can transform that in you, but it's only when you come to the living God and you say, on your terms, God, on your terms. I'm not gonna define who you are. I want you to define who I am, and I'm gonna change and, and adapt because of who you are, right? It's only when we approach the living God. Now, some of you at this point, you might be like, man, Wow, that's, uh, that's crazy. I, I don't think I realize, but I, I, I do do this, man. I, I tend to create my own God. How do I come to the living God? How do we come to him? How do we approach him? Well, here's my favorite part of this whole thing. The Bible tells us that the reason that God doesn't want us to create an image of him isn't because there isn't an image available. The Bible tells us the reason that God doesn't want us to create an image is because he doesn't want us to be the ones who define who he is. He says, don't try to limit me. But the Bible tells us that God himself has provided an image for us. That God says, you wanna know what I'm like? You wanna know, you wanna know who I am? You wanna draw close to me? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give you an image. I'll give you a picture, but you don't, de- you don't determine what it is. I determine what it is. And what is the picture that God gave us? And when you get to the New Testament, you see it. Colossians chapter one tells us about it. Look at this, Colossians one, verse 15. The son is the image of the invisible God, that's Jesus, firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, 
things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, for him, and by him. The Bible tells us, man, you want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus. God says, he is my exact representation. You want to know what I'm like? You come to Christ. Jesus says, if you see the Father or if you see the Son, you've seen the Father. And the perfect image, the grace and love of God is demonstrated perfectly in Jesus. Truth and mercy are all seen in Jesus. The wrath of God, the anger of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, all of those things are enveloped in the person of Jesus Christ. And God says, you want to draw near to me? You want to know what I'm like? Here's the way that you do it. You fall down. You worship my son, Jesus. You bend your life to him. Make him the author and perfecter of your life. That's how you draw close to me. The Bible says that we're saved, and one of the things the Bible tells us is that we are saved by the living God, not a God of our own creation, but by the God who created us. That's how we're saved. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you because you've, um, you've really offered us an incredible way to, to, to connect with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, the reality is... Um, that our hearts are prone to creating idols of our own making. Or would you forgive us for the times that we try to edit you or, or, or whittle you down to a manageable size? Father, would you forgive us for the times that, that our hearts drift from you and that we, we begin to worship a God of our own opinion rather than the, the God of the universe? But I ask you that we draw to the living God. God, you're, you're alive. That means you're knowable. That means you're personable. That means that you're not just a philosophical construct, you're not just a worldview, you're not just a religious system. God, you have a character, you have desires, you have a will. But Father, just because we have preferences or because there's things we don't like, that doesn't mean that changes who you are. And so Father, I pray that as our hearts draw near to you, Father, that you would help us to approach you as the living God the creator, the one who created all of this, that created us, that gave us breath, I pray that we come to you and not say, what, what do I want to change about you? But say, what do you want to change in me? Change me. Make me different. I don't want to make you different. You make me different because you're God. And Father, it's only when we approach you this way that we can actually unlock the power that you, that you have given us to change us. Gods of our own invention can't save us. You alone can save us. Gods of our invention can't change us. They can't transform us. They have no power. But God, you have all power. So I pray we approach you as the living God. And so even now, as we sing these songs, God, I ask you that we would sing them not out of obligation, not just simply because it's what we do on Sunday morning, but we'd sing them out to the living God, the one who saved us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.